I would like to invite you to open your Bibles to Colossians chapter 2. If you don't have one with you, there's probably one in the chair in front of you, reddish-colored. Colossians is near the end of the book, toward the right. Colossians in the New Testament, chapter 2. And um, this morning, we're going to be focusing on verses 9 through 15, but I'd like to begin reading for you, beginning in verse 8 this morning because that's actually where the paragraph begins. I'm going to come back again to verse 8 a little later uh, in this uh, segment, but not this morning. Colossians 2.8 See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception according to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of the world, rather than according to Christ. For in Him... All the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form, and in Him you have been made complete. And He is the head over all rule and authority. And in Him you were also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, in the removal of the body of the flesh, by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with Him in baptism, in which you were also raised up with Him through faith in the working of God, who raised Him from the dead." And when you were dead in your transgression and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all our transgressions, having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, and which was hostile to us. And he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. When he had disarmed the rulers and authorities, he made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through it, or him, uh, depending on what version you're reading. But the last uh, pronoun is probably a reference to the cross. Father, we thank you for your word to us this morning. We ask that you open the eyes of our heart. We understand, according to your word, that the natural mind cannot grasp or understand, comprehend the things of the Spirit, because they're spiritually discerned. And I pray this morning that you would give us that insight by your Holy Spirit into the very depths of our being, that we can understand the truth that you are setting before us and learn what it means to walk in it, to live in it, and to live by it. I ask it in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen. As we come this morning to begin talking about the specific problems that Paul is addressing in the Colossian church, uh, there's one observation that struck me as I was getting into this, and this is true of many of Paul's letters, is that we do not have the questions stated for us. We just have the answers In other words, the church at Colossae was facing problems by false teachers. They were facing the risk of being uh, led astray by inaccurate, incorrect teaching and doctrine. And Epaphras had come to Paul basically saying, we need some help in the churches back in the Lycus Valley in in Colossae and Hierapolis, Laodicea, we need some help. Could you... Could you write something authoritative? We presume that's kind of what happened. 
and Epaphras set out for Paul what was going on. Only problem is, he didn't repeat that in the letter. He just began to answer the questions. And so immediately we see that we have answers here without questions. And we have to look at the answers and kind of deduce the question. So what was Paul addressing when he starts this argument, this uh, logical defense in Colossians chapter 2, beginning in verse 9? What was Paul answering? And I think the question that he was answering was something like this. How can I be successful in the Christian life? How can I, how can I be spiritually mature? How can I experience in my life uh, deliverance from my sinful habits and, and my old ways? What is it that is going to enable me to, to grow up and mature as a follower of Jesus Christ? Now, I think they were asking that or something like that because... For one thing, they were, they were a first-generation church. And passion in spiritual life is always strongest in first generation. Um, children who are second or third generation in a Christian home tend to grow up in the church. And really, they almost have to overcome a hurdle of coming to Christ and developing that personal passion and encounter with Him for themselves, that has to happen somewhere along their life because it's just kind of easy to grow up in what people have become used to. But this was not the case in the Colossian church. These were first-generation followers of Jesus Christ who were passionate about Him. They were serious. They had serious questions that concerned their lives. How How does this happen for me? How do I grow and develop and mature and experience success and victory as a Christian? And, um, you know, I'm confident that that was on their mind. Uh, Today, I suppose, it would be conceivable that these kinds of questions would never arise because there are many people who attend church and claim to be Christian and they're kind of non-committal and sort of lackadaisical about the whole thing. They wouldn't be so disturbed by false teachers. It's like, oh, let's just go to the ball game and forget all that stuff. You know, I'm just, I'm, I'm into some other stuff. I, I just want to go to heaven when I die, but I want to, I want to live now, you know, the way I want to live. But these people were, were passionate about their commitment to Christ. That's what put them at risk for false teaching. Because when you're hungry, and you want to learn, and you want to grow, and you want to develop, and somebody comes along and says, I can tell you how to do that. It's like, okay, I'm all ears. And so Paul recognized they were at risk. So, I propose to you this morning that the question that was being asked was, how do I be successful as a Christian? And by success I mean, how do I please God? How do I grow up and be mature? How do I overcome the, the, the sinful habits and the problems of my life and, and reflect Jesus Christ to the world. Paul is going to answer that question for us in the rest of this chapter and moving into chapter 3. The second thing I want to say this morning by way of introduction is that all spiritual development occurs kind of in three stages. 
from, from the very moment you came to Christ and became a Christian, and everything that you get after that in the Christian life in terms of growth happens in three logical steps. The first thing is, you have to hear the message. The truth has got to be proclaimed. Paul says uh, in the book of Romans, he says, how shall they hear unless there's a preacher? And how shall they preach unless someone is sent, you know? And so he, he develops the concept that you've got to confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead. But how are you going to even know that unless someone tells you? Therefore, he makes that conclusion from the Old Testament, how beautiful are the feet of those that bring good news, uh, the gospel message of Jesus Christ, because you need a messenger. You've got to have the truth presented. The second stage in, in that process is, having heard the truth, you have to believe that it is the truth. There has to be a, 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 an intellectual commitment to the fact, yes, I agree that that is true. Now, that is not the transformational moment. You may believe that, and it's not going to do you any good. For example, someone may hear the simple gospel message. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, came to this world to save sinners he died on the cross to pay the penalty for sin. He was buried. He rose again the third day. And He has ascended into the heavens. And He has paid the price for your sin so that you can have a relationship with God. And someone says, I, I agree with that. I believe that. And James says, the demons believe that. And they tremble. That does not make any difference in their lives. To give agreement to the fact is kind of step two. I heard the facts. I heard the message. I have agreed to the message. But the third step has to be, I give myself to it. I heard the truth about what Jesus did. I believe He not only died for sinners, He died for me. I receive Him as my Lord and Savior. I commit my life to Him. I am going to bank on the truth that I have heard. I'm going to make an investment in it. I give my life to Jesus Christ. I'm going to stop all the other things I was doing to please God. I'm going to stop all the other ways I thought I might get to heaven. I'm going to put all my eggs in this basket that Jesus died on the cross for my sin. And I take that for myself as my own. That step of faith is the commitment that leads us into the transformational element of the truth. So, as we get into this this morning, and this is only the beginning, but as we get into this, we're going to see that cycle kind of played out. And what Paul is giving us in the paragraph I just read a few moments ago is the foundational truth. All right, here are the facts. Step two is, you must agree that these are the facts. I believe what you're saying, Paul. I believe this is true. And step three in the process is, I am going to take a stand and live my life on the reality that this has actually happened, that this applies to me.
Now, I, I want you to um, kind of make a commitment to me this morning. I'm going to ask you to make an investment here. Because I cannot lay this all out in one sermon. Or we'll be here till dinner time. It's just it's too much. I can't, I can't lay it all out. So I can only give you a piece this morning. I'm going to give you the factual foundation this morning. But you have a study guide, and I really want you to take it home. I hope you're in a small group, but if you're not, I would still like you to take the study guide home. And I want you to think about what you hear this morning, and pray about it, and ask God to give you insight and understanding. Consider the questions on the back of it. In other words, engage with me, because it's going to take me three or four weeks to unpack this. And, and what you're going to leave with this morning is, is an under lying foundation of truth, but it's going to lack a significant amount of application. The how-to is not going to be fully explained this morning because it can't do this all in one all in one message. But if you will come back for the next several weeks, I'm going to unpack this whole thing as Paul explains it to the Colossians. And I hope that by, by the end um, of May... You know, you'll be able to say, ah, I understand what Paul was saying. I believe it, and I'm beginning to experience it. I'm beginning to see uh, the difference that this will make. So, are you with me? You've got to have the truth. You've got to believe it's the truth. And then you've got to rest in the truth by faith that this is, in fact, reality. Now, here's what Paul says. False teachers were saying all kinds of things. And one of the things they were saying is, you need more than Jesus. Jesus is not enough. You've got to have some extra stuff. You need some angels over here. You need some rules over here. You need a little uh, different influence in the heavenlies. You need more than Jesus. In fact, uh, some of them were even denying either the deity of Christ or the humanity of Christ by saying... Jesus could not have had a real body because matter is evil, spirit is good. You've heard that argument before, but this was very real for them. It's still real. There's still people that struggle with that today. In fact, a lot of Eastern mysticism is based on the belief that the the whole universe is in dynamic tension between black and white, good and evil, matter and spirit, and the whole thing, you know, is 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 in that tension. So, that was one of the problems. The other problem that was probably as significant is by saying that Jesus didn't have a real body is the the first part. The second part is um, Jesus was not a real man. If the first part kind of denies his humanity, uh, the second part denies it in a different way by saying he wasn't a real man, um, he was a superman, he was like God uh, in, in ways that human beings can never experience. And so uh, don't even try to be like him because you can never be like him. Jesus is in a special category. And so both of those things take us away from who he actually was. So Paul begins his argument to the false teachers in verse 9 by saying that in him... All the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. 
Now, it's interesting that this is the only time in the New Testament that this word bodily as an adverb occurs. All the fullness of deity dwells in him bodily. It dwells bodily. What is Paul's point? Paul's point is that Jesus of Nazareth, whom we proclaim, had resident within his being all the fullness of God. Everything that pertains to God pertained to Jesus. But it was wrapped up in a human body, a male human being, a body. Just like you and I have a body. And he was totally and fully human as much as he was God come in the flesh. This gives the lie, first of all, to the idea that you cannot be in a body and be truly spiritual. And it's the first thing Paul wants to put the lie to. You can be in a body in this side of heaven, in this life, in this world, with this flesh, and you can still be living in the power of God's presence. All the fullness of deity dwells in him in bodily form. And then, this reminds us of the fact that Jesus at the Last Supper said to his disciples, I'm going to be leaving you, but I'm not going to leave you comfortless. I'm going to send you another comforter, even the Spirit of Truth, who has been with you, but he will be in you. The Holy Spirit of God, who indwelt the person of Jesus Christ, is the same Spirit that indwells us. Paul is letting us know that Jesus Christ, on this earth, lived in the power of the Holy Spirit. All the fullness of God dwells in Him. But guess what? You have the same Spirit. And if you take the logic appropriately throughout the passage... All the fullness of God dwells in you by the presence of the Holy Spirit. You don't become God. We're not saying that. You don't become God, but you have God living in you by His Spirit. Everything that Jesus was, you have. All the fullness of God, all the fullness of God dwelt in Him, and the same fullness is available to you in bodily form. That's point number one. Three truths that Paul brings out here. The first one is that Jesus Christ, fully man, in human flesh, also had all the fullness of God dwelling in Him. And the same fullness is available to you. Secondly, verse 10 And in Him you have been made complete. And He is the head over all rule and authority. The second thing that we need to to really get is that in Jesus Christ we have received everything we need and we ourselves have been completed. There is nothing that needs to be added in order for you to live successfully as a follower of Jesus Christ. In order for you to break the habits of the past. In order for you to do the things that God wants you to do. There's nothing that you need in addition 
to Jesus Christ. The word completed is in the, the perfect tense, and it means it is an action that was accomplished in the past, and you are now living in the consequences or result of that action. Let me put it this way and, and bring the grammar right home in a way that you can get your, get your hands around it. If you tell me, last week I painted my living room blue, I have a question for you. What color is it today? It's blue, right? Unless you painted it since then. <laughs> Whatever you painted it last weekend, you are now living in a blue living room, right? You did it, and now you're living with the results. Your living room is blue. In Jesus Christ, you have been made complete. Done deal. History. Past tense. But you live in the present result of that action. The, the, the environment of your life in Jesus Christ rests upon a finished action that occurred in the past. You were made complete in Him. Now, a couple of things happened to make you complete. Before you came to know Jesus Christ, you were not complete. The Scripture describes human beings as having a spirit, a soul, and a body. Before you met Jesus Christ, you had a soul and a body and a spirit that was dead, was not alive. There was no communion with God. There was no connection with God. You were separated from God. Furthermore, the Bible describes human beings as creatures made in the image of God, designed to be containers of His Holy Spirit. We were made for the Spirit of God to dwell in us. But from the time that Adam and Eve ate that fruit in the Garden of Eden, the Holy Spirit vacated the premises, and no human being outside of Christ has had the Holy Spirit living in them. But since you came to Christ, you have been made complete in Him. What was missing has been filled up. Number one, the Holy Spirit came back home. He came to live in you, like He was originally intended to. Number two, your human spirit, which was dead in sin, has come to life. And you now are connected with God in the spiritual realm. You have a connection, an intimacy with God that was purchased by Jesus Christ on the cross. The Holy Spirit is living in you. Your human spirit has come to life. You are a whole person today. You are complete. You have everything you need in Christ for life and godliness. There's nothing that needs to be added from the moment that you trusted Him as your Lord and Savior and committed yourself to Him. In Him, you have been made complete. And He is head over all rule and authority. So, two facts we have so far. All the fullness of God dwells in Jesus Christ bodily. There is no innate 
um, opposition between my body and the Spirit of God. My body is not my problem. I, I have other problems, but my body is not what's keeping me from pleasing God. All the fullness of God dwelt in Jesus Christ bodily. So, the fact that you are encumbered with a human body, you'd actually have a lot of trouble in this world if you didn't have one. So, it may not be an encumbrance. But the fact that you're encumbered with a human body is not a hindrance to you living successfully as a follower of Jesus Christ and experiencing victory over the problems and sins and issues of your life. Your body is not the problem. Jesus had a body. All the fullness of God dwelt in Him. Number two, in Him, you've been made complete. You have everything you need in Jesus Christ, having trusted Him as Lord and Savior. Now He resides in you by His Spirit. You have everything you need. Number three, Paul says, and in Him... You were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. Now, wait a minute. What's, what's this circumcision all about? What is this talking about? Um, there was a cartoon. You know, the Bible's pretty uh, straightforward about some things. And there was a cartoon in Leadership Magazine uh, a couple of decades ago. But it was one of those that just impressed me, that it stayed in my mind. You know, it was a simple little single-frame uh, cartoon the pastor standing there on a Sunday morning has a bag over his head with two eye holes cut out. And uh, the guy on the front row is elbowing the fellow sitting next to him. He must be reading from the Song of Solomon again today. So very frank about human relationships. So you now you all want to go home and read the Song of Solomon, right? It's very descriptive. Well... His embarrassment was apparent, so he covered his head with a bag. That's, that image has always stuck with me, because I think there's some things in the Bible that are to the Circumcision is a big deal in the Bible. And Paul wants us to know that we have been circumcised in Christ Jesus with a circumcision not made with hands. And the question immediately becomes... What's this all about? When you get there, just hang on for a minute. Genesis chapter 17. Because I want to give you the backdrop to this. If you do not know the story of Abraham, I'm going to tell it to you in about two minutes. If you don't know the story, bear with me. It uh, won't hurt to hear it again. This guy by the name of Abram, wealthy businessman from all that we can tell, uh, was visited by God while he was singing of the Chaldees. God came to him. We don't have any background for that other than the fact that it happened. God uh, came to him one day and said, Abram, I want you to take your wife Sarai and your family, and I want you to leave Ur of the Chaldees, and I want you to go to a land that I'm going to show you. And uh, so the Scripture says that Abram believed God and packed up all of his goods, closed his businesses down, livestock and all of his earthly possessions, and left Ur of the Chaldees and went into the wilderness looking for that place that God was going to give to him. And does this, uh, Abram's name means father of many. 
And God says to him, I'm going to bless you. And I'm going to give you uh, a son. And through your son will come a great nation. Through you will come a nation. And all the nations and peoples of the world will be... And uh, you're going to be, the, you know, this great father, exalted father. And you're going to have children. And they're going to bless the whole world. And so Abram gets out there. Wandering around, excuse me. They're wandering around from place to place, and um, they don't have any kids. You can imagine how that feels. Abram introduces himself to new people. He says, Hi, my name's Abram. Oh, father of many, how many kids do you have? Uh, well, none yet. Well, this is going on for a while, and Abram uh, decides that um, getting, getting less and less likely. And so Abram uh, and Sarai, Sarah comes to him, Sarai comes to him and says, Abram, look, this doesn't seem to be working out the way we thought it might. We still haven't had any children. Chances are I'm not going to have any. So I want to give you... Hagar, my servant, and, and I want you to have a child with her, and we'll adopt that child as our own. Now, to us, that's like really weird, but to the culture of the day, that was really normal. Hagar was a slave owned by the family of Abram. You know, we don't get the whole picture till Revelation, so don't judge Abram for that, okay? I mean, there's a whole lot in the New Testament he didn't know. And so they own this, this woman. This woman belongs to Sarai. She's her handmaid. And, uh, and so uh, it was acceptable within the culture and legally that if a couple were childless, they could take a slave girl, conceive through her. She would give birth, deliver, sitting in the lap of the wife. Symbolically, the child would pass through both of their knees, and symbolically, that child would then become the heir of the family and the legitimate child of the husband and wife. Handmaiden notwithstanding, too bad, you're out of luck here, because this is our child. And so, that's what uh, Abram did. Abram was not doing anything within his culture that was immoral, ungodly, or illegal. He was doing something that was naturally accepted according to the practice of the day. Hagar has a child. He is a, he is a boy. His name is Ishmael. And Ishmael begins to grow up in Abram's family. Uh, as uh, as their son. The only problem is, human nature being what it is, Sarai begins to get jealous and frustrated because Hagar was able to conceive and she wasn't able to conceive. And there's a lot of tension going on in this household. This is not a good good plan. That, by the way, is why in the fuller revelation of God as we go through time and history, you know, you get to the New Testament and you find that spiritual leaders should be the husbands of one wife. I mean, let's keep this thing simple and not get it all complicated. 
And so that's, uh, you know, that's the point. One man, one woman relationship. But this wasn't the case. So when we turn to Genesis chapter 17, this is the scenario. Abram and Sarai and Hagar have this child Ishmael who's 13 years old. And God comes to Abraham for another visit. Let's pick up in verse 1. Now, when Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless, and I will establish my covenant between me and you, and I will multiply you exceedingly. In other words, God is saying, now is the time when I'm going to bring to reality my promise. I'm going to establish my covenant. Abraham fell on his face before God and talked with God, saying, And God talked with him, saying, As for me, behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham, for I will make you the father of a multitude of nations, and I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make nations of you, and kings shall come from you, and I will establish my covenant between me and you and your descendants after you throughout the generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your descendants after you, and I will give you and your descendants after you, the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. Now God said further to Abraham, Now as for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your descendants after you throughout their generation. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your descendants after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. And you shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskin. And it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. And every male among you who is eight days old shall be circumcised throughout your generations. A servant who is born in the house or one who is bought with money from any foreigner who is not one of your descendants. A servant born in your house or who is bought with money shall be circumcised. Thus shall my covenant be in your flesh for an everlasting covenant. But an uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin, that person shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. Now, so far, everything is cool. God's going to change Abram's name to Abraham. And as he establishes the covenant, God is going to give him a sign of the covenant. The people of God... Descended from Abraham will be known because all the males will be circumcised. And God is going to make from Abraham a multitude of nations. And, you know, I don't know about this circumcision thing. I don't know what was going through Abraham's mind, but it's like, okay, this is good. Then God says to Abraham, verse 15, As for Sarai, your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. And I will bless her, and indeed I will give you a son by her. Then I will bless her, and she will be a mother 
of nations, and kings and peoples will come from her. Then Abraham fell on his face and laughed. Okay, are you following this story? I'm 99. I have a 13-year-old. A little late in life, but we're at least in those teen years. And Sarah is 90. Have you lost your mind? What are you thinking, God? He's laughing. And Abraham says, Oh, God, that Ishmael might live before you. I mean, come on, God. We've already been through this, and I've got Ishmael. And God says, No, but Sarah, your wife, will bear a son, and you'll call his name Isaac, and I will establish my covenant with him for an everlasting covenant and for his descendants after him. As for Ishmael, I've heard you. Behold, I'll make him and bless him and make him fruitful and multiply him exceedingly. He will be the father of twelve princes, and I will make him a great nation. But my covenant I will establish with Isaac, whom Sarah will bear to you at this season next year. Now, God is putting concrete facts to His promise. This time next year, your 90-year-old wife, way past menopause, is going to have a baby that you're going to call Isaac. He will be bouncing on your lap a year from now. And Abraham is like, man, this is impossible. I mean, we've tried all of our lives. I don't know how many years they've been married by then, but let's say 75. We've been trying all of our lives. This is not going to happen. God says this time next year. And when he had finished talking with him, God went up from Abraham. Abraham took Ishmael his son and all the servants who were born in his house and all who were bought with money, every male among the men of Abraham's household, and circumcised the flesh of their foreskin the very same day as God had said. Now, Abraham was 99 years old. Ishmael was 13 years old. In the day that Abraham and Ishmael were circumcised and all the men of his household who were born in the house or bought with money from a foreigner were circumcised with him. Now, you have to read the book of Galatians to get the connection between Hagar and Ishmael and Sarah and and Isaac. I encourage you to read Galatians this week to make that connection. But let me give you a synopsis of it here this morning very quickly. Paul points out to the Galatians who were struggling with this whole thing of the law, how, what, what role does the law play in our lives? He says, Ishmael was a child, a product of the flesh, of the natural man. Isaac was a child of promise, born miraculously, born of the Spirit. And the point is that What Abram and Sarai had accomplished with the birth of Ishmael, anybody could have done in their natural flesh. It was was not that rare. It was 
something any human being could accomplish. But what Abraham and Sarah accomplished in the birth of Isaac was a miracle. It was not humanly possible. It could not be done in human nature. Because Sarah was way beyond the possibility of conceiving a child. Her time was past. And besides that, they're like 99 and 90. Go figure. The second interesting thing about this passage is the changing of their name. If you look at their names in Hebrew, there is a letter added that is Hey. And that letter is also the first part of the name Yahweh. And it introduces into their name a breath sound. Listen to me say Abram versus Abraham. Sarai. Sarah. I'm exaggerating, but the H is a breathing sound that is introduced into their name. And I submit to you that in the typology explained in the New Testament, the seal of the covenant was the symbol of the Holy Spirit who would come to do what could not be done by our own effort. He would do the miraculous, whereas we are only capable of the natural. And so when Paul says to the Colossians, in Christ, you've got it all, buddy. There's nothing else you need. All the fullness of deity dwelt in him. He's living in you, and in him you have been made complete. And you have been circumcised in Him with a circumcision made without hands in the cutting off of your fleshly nature and the coming of the Holy Spirit to do the miraculous in your life. Now, Paul fleshes this out a little bit, no pun intended. He draws this out a little bit as we go along. But one of the things that we often encounter as we talk about this, and Romans chapter 6 brings this out as well, is that if my flesh has been cut off, my carnal nature, the the sinful side of me, if that's been cut off, how come I'm still tempted and troubled and struggle? What's going on with that? And the best way to understand that in Romans chapter 6, and that's another passage I encourage you to read this week. So, so now you have six chapters in Galatians, one chapter in Romans. You can get them all read before next Sunday, one a day, okay? But Romans chapter 6 says that the, the flesh, the carnal nature, the sin nature has been rendered powerless. When we say that it is cut off or put to death, we do not mean, nor does the Scripture teach, that it stops yapping and yammering. It's still fussing at us, but it has no power to control us. 
we have been given the Holy Spirit to do what we can never do by our own power. And the thing that used to pull us down all the time has been rendered powerless. Paul explains this as he finishes out this paragraph. He says, that circumcision was effected in you when you were buried with Christ by baptism and raised with Him to walk in a new life. And then he tells us two more very important details that I want you to take home with you. The first one is that Jesus triumphed over all of this garbage stuff and all the powers of darkness. And when he went to the cross, he took the certificate of debts against you and nailed it to his cross. What does that mean? Just think for a moment. Think back to the last time that you know you disappointed God. How far back do you have to think? This morning, yesterday, last week? Think back across your lifespan to all the things that you know you've done that were disappointing to God. Are you able to remember anything? Don't raise your hand. Just stay with me here. Are you able to remember anything? Do you ever hear those things being brought up? Look what kind of Christian you are. What? Who, who do you think you are to pray this bold prayer? Do you see what kind of stuff you do? You're a real jerk. You have a sin history. You've made mistakes you can never live down. God doesn't really love you. How could he love somebody like you? Do you hear those things ever? Paul is saying every single thing you have ever done that is a legitimate accusation against you plus all the illegitimate ones, but that's another story. Everything you've ever done that the devil can legitimately bring up, look, God, was nailed to the cross. On the cross, they would typically put a list of the crimes committed of the criminal at the top. That's why on Jesus' cross, Pilate had inscribed, This is Jesus, King of the Jews. That's the only crime that he was ever guilty of. (laughs) King of the Jews. And he was. But they killed him for it. They would inscribe the list of crimes so that when you passed by and saw someone hanging on a cross being executed, you could look and see what they had done wrong. And Paul is saying everything that you have ever done that could be written legitimately on that paper was nailed to the cross of Jesus Christ, and you died in Him to those sins. All the certificate of decrees and deaths against you were nailed to the cross. They have been paid for. The debt has been paid. The books are closed. The slate is wiped clean. You stand in God's presence with nothing that can be laid to your charge. 
Do you know how powerful it is if you could get your hands around that? To just know that no matter what the devil says, even if it's true, it's a lie. Because it has been nailed to the cross and God does not hold it to your account. Jesus Christ has paid that price. It's already done. It's already finished. So you have peace with God. You don't have to be embarrassed. You don't have to be ashamed. You can come into His presence. You can even talk openly with Him about the problems you do have because the guilt of them has been put on Jesus Christ. Now all we've got to solve is the behavior. The penalty, the price, the guilt has been paid. The second thing is that Paul says, In the cross, Jesus Christ triumphed over the powers of darkness and made public display of them. You've heard me say before, those of you that have been around for a while, that the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the single most powerful event in all of universe history. It is for a simple reason. The devil did everything he could to kill Jesus off before he could get to manhood. Then he did everything he could to kill him off before he could go to the cross. And then on the cross, he even sent a few people by to taunt him and get him to come off the cross. If you're the Son of God, come down and save yourself. All of that failed. Jesus Christ went to the cross, a perfect man, a sinless man for our sins. He nailed our sins to the cross and triumphed over sin and death. There was only one thing left for the devil to try that could permanently defeat God, and that was to keep Jesus in the grave. So if you're the devil, and this is your last chance at stopping the plan of God forever, do you think you're going to have your forces diluted throughout all the universe? I think like any shrewd general, and certainly the devil is that, he had marshaled every demon power available and himself personally to put a lid on the tomb where Jesus was buried and to keep him from rising. And the scripture says that it didn't even slow him down. Death had lost its power and its sting, and Jesus came out of the grave because on the cross he made public ridicule of the powers of darkness and triumphed over them through the cross. And Paul, in all of his letters, points to the cross as the single most powerful demonstration of God's universal power in all of history. The resurrection is the focus of the mighty power of God. Jesus won. He is the victor. He is the head over all rule and authority. He reigns supremely. He lives on high. And He's mine. He's my friend. He's my advocate. He's my Savior. What else can I possibly hope for? I have everything in Jesus. And He is over everything. He has all authority, all power, all control, and I am complete in Him.
Now, that's the starting point. Friends, in order for us to go on to understand how to walk in the victory that Christ has purchased for us, we must first accept these truths. We must first believe them. And we have to commit ourselves to the reality that this is the truth about us. And when I rest in that truth, I am ready to look at the problem of sin in my life and understand how to appropriate the cure that God has purchased through Jesus Christ. And so I I want you to think about that this week. Do I believe that this is true of me? No matter what other things may seem contrary, no matter how I may feel, No matter what lies are being whispered in my ear, do I believe that this is true? Do I believe that I am complete in Jesus Christ? That the power of the flesh has been destroyed, that the Holy Spirit has been given, that I have the equipment already present to live successfully and triumphantly as a follower of Jesus Christ. That's where we begin. And then we move on. And we'll see that in the days to come. We're going to find out how not to do it. Because Paul addresses that almost immediately. And then we're going to, to find out how to live by faith. Instead of by effort. And, and my own And and we're going to perhaps learn where we're believing lies. Um, And maybe we're going to learn where we're having trouble because Jesus is not the most important person in my life. The most important thing. You know, people fail because they're either listening to the lies of the enemy or because... They don't love Jesus with all of their heart and all of their mind and all of their soul and all of their strength. If there's anything more important to you than Jesus, it, it, there, there's going to be trouble. But we're going to explore that. And hopefully, as we look at that, uh, you will find some very, very practical help for enjoying the victory that Christ has already purchased for you. Brother, would you come lead us in a closing song?